Hi everyone, and welcome back to The Psychology PhD, a podcast developed by grad students right here in the Columbia University Psychology Department, where we discuss psych-focused graduate programs. Once again, I'm Monica Tiu, a fifth-year student here in our program. This season, we're discussing the process of applying to PhD programs in experimental psychology. So far, over the course of the first three episodes, we've talked about what the psychology PhD entails, how to prepare for your PhD application, and the purpose and structure of CVs and resumes. If you're just jumping in here, we do recommend that you go and check out those previous episodes, and they are linked in the show notes for easy access. Now, it's time to jump into our topics for today's episode, research experience and recommendation letters. As we mentioned several times in earlier episodes, academic research experience is crucial for admission to an experimental psychology PhD program. Depending on where you are right now in the application process, you might be curious about what qualifies as academic research experience and how you can obtain it. And naturally, you might also be wondering about how to acquire recommendation letters that are suitable for a psychology PhD application. So in this episode, we'll discuss the following topics. What research experience looks like for the field of experimental psychology, undergraduate versus post-bac versus master's level research, how to obtain a research position, and finally, how to request letters of recommendation. At first glance, the term research experience might be a little daunting if you don't have any yet. Fortunately, there are many ways that you can help out in a lab and contribute to science, even if you have never set foot in a lab before. Typically, entry-level research opportunities allow you to do just that. In such a role, you'll gain hands-on experience with conducting experiments, and after spending some time in the lab, you may even learn more advanced skills like analyzing data and conducting literature reviews. In addition, research experience is a great way, and I think one of the best ways, to discover and develop your own research interests in preparation for graduate school. In fact, the plethora of skills and knowledge that you can obtain during your time in a lab is precisely why it's so important for a psychology PhD application. Professors want to know that you have a rough idea of what research in the field looks like and that you'll have picked up important skills that will be essential to your own success as a graduate student. In our field, an entry-level research position is often referred to as a research assistant job or an RA job for short. Now, let's talk a bit about what the typical RA experience looks like. Before we do so, however, I think it's important that we briefly go over the organizational structure of a lab. In our field, labs are led by usually one, sometimes more, principal investigators, or PIs. A PI guides and oversees all the research that's conducted in a lab, kind of like the founder of a startup or a CEO of a company. PIs are usually faculty members at a university and hold the academic title of professor. In addition to the PI, and of course, graduate students, like in the programs that you're probably applying to, labs usually have postdoctoral researchers who've recently completed their PhD training. A helpful way to conceptualize a postdoc is through the lens of what happens in the medical field. Postdoctoral researchers can be thought of as the medical residents of our field. They're still qualified doctors, but they are completing postgrad training under the guidance of a PI. Most postdocs pursue such opportunities to become PIs of their own labs one day. Finally, most labs in our field have research assistants who are primarily undergrads and people who have already acquired a bachelor's degree. 
In this podcast, we'll refer to the second group of people as post-bacs, which is short for post-bachelors or post-baccalaureate. Same thing. In the research assistant role, you'll likely work alongside a grad student or a postdoc on a study. You may help out by carrying out experiments with human or non-human animal subjects, conducting literature reviews, managing communications with human participants, keeping track of important forms, coding written responses or participant behavior from videos or just by watching them, or completing data analysis using statistical computing with code. One important note about this last point, it is perfectly fine if you have never typed a line of computer code in your life to this point. Many psychology grad students were first exposed to programming as research assistants or even later in their careers as graduate students. I started learning R as an undergraduate research assistant and it was very hard when I started, but I'm very glad I stuck with it. If you're interested in learning to program in R or Python for scientific purposes, we've linked some basic programming resource for novice coders in the show notes. As an RA, it is important to thoughtfully engage in the project to which you're assigned. That is, you'll be expected to read scientific papers that your immediate supervisor deems central to the project's hypotheses and aims, and maintain a clear understanding of the entire project. Finally, you may be expected to attend and actively participate in meetings in the lab. The responsibilities we've covered so far are both central to a research position at the undergraduate and post-bac levels. However, there are some additional duties that might come with a post-bac research position. If you are hired as a lab manager, this role might also include administrative tasks like coordinating lab activities, maintaining research protocols, and monitoring undergraduate research assistants. Now that we've gone through what a typical research experience looks like, we'll chat a bit about the different types of research positions that exist. Undergraduate research positions and many post-bac research positions tend to be unpaid. However, some institutions may allow you to participate in research for course credit or as part of completing an honors thesis. These unpaid research positions are usually part-time, that is about eight to 15 hours a week, depending on the position, and your schedule will be determined by you and your immediate research supervisor, be it a postdoc, a graduate student, or directly with the PI. The minimum length of a typical unpaid research position is one academic term. With that being said, graduate and postdoc researchers often prefer to work with undergraduates and postbacs who are interested in staying in the position for a year or more because of the length of training that's required to be able to meaningfully assist in a project. For undergraduate students who are interested in earning some money as research assistants, there are a number of paid summer research opportunities available. These opportunities are usually eight to 10 weeks long and often provide a stipend, housing, and sometimes even GRE prep or professional development courses. Some programs that facilitate such research experiences include the National Science Foundation's Research Experience for Undergraduates program, the Leadership Alliance, and the Big Ten Academic Alliance, among many others. Individual universities may also offer summer internship or fellowship opportunities, sometimes through a specific department and sometimes through the general undergraduate program. Finally, summer research is a great way to get some experience at a different institution especially if you seek to learn specialized research techniques that your current institution may not have. 
In the show notes, we've linked a spreadsheet containing a sampling of different funding opportunities with programs for undergraduates, postbacs, and more. Keep in mind, this sheet is far from comprehensive. There are many programs out there and new opportunities arise all the time. There are also full-time paid postbac research positions. Most positions at this level involve a one to three year commitment with an average length of two years. These kinds of paid postbac positions can be completely research focused or include additional administrative tasks to help ensure that the lab is running smoothly. Given that this is a full-time role, you'll most likely work with multiple graduate students and or postdocs. And if a lab is particularly new, you may work one-on-one -on -one with the PI themselves. Regardless of the stage that the lab is in, postbac research assistants often have a unique opportunity to build a relationship with a faculty-level researcher. PIs are often quite invested in the research journey of their postbac assistants. As a result, many PIs will have multiple one-on-one -on -one meetings with their postbac RAs to review the progress and discuss the next steps in their careers. Like we mentioned in episode one, many students do not complete a master's degree before applying to PhD programs. However, for those with a reason to invest in a master's program in psychology, they'll most likely complete research as part of their master's thesis. And depending on the institution, most likely they'll be expected to present their research in the form of a talk or an oral defense at the culmination of that thesis. Although this experience might be nerve wracking for some, this experience can only help to develop students' ability to communicate their research effectively, which is a critical skill for a career in research. Regardless of where you currently are in your academic career, a good first step towards securing a research role is to, well, do some research in advance. Research labs at an academic institution will often have websites that provide more information about the lab's focus, along with a list of publications featuring the lab's work. The best way to narrow down which research topics excite you the most is to read a paper or two from each lab. This will give you a better sense of the types of research questions that the lab is asking, the sorts of techniques that they use to answer those questions, and the subject population that is human or non-human animals that they primarily work with. When determining which research papers you should read from that list of publications, we recommend that you stick to key theoretical or empirical papers from that lab. For example, papers where an important theory was first introduced, as well as recent papers that have published ideally within the last five years. Sometimes it can be hard to figure out which papers are the key papers. One helpful approach is to look at how many times a paper has been cited by other researchers in their work. This information should be listed for a paper if you do a search for the paper's title on a website like Google Scholar. And while citation count is definitely not a perfect indicator of a paper's quality or importance, a paper that's been cited a lot has clearly been read by many other people in the field and has therefore contributed to how that topic is thought about by others. Importantly, it is totally okay if you don't understand everything that you read in a research paper. After all, you're a scientist in training and reading research papers effectively and quickly comes with lots of experience. For now, it's important to try to get the big picture takeaways of the paper, understand the findings as best you can, and keep track of questions you might have while reading. Don't be afraid to summarize key points of the paper by taking down some quick notes if you need to. Reading through the abstract thoroughly where the authors themselves have summarized the most important points of the paper is a great starting point. 
Finally, remember to be flexible. There is a chance that you might not identify labs with research that falls perfectly in line with your interests. That's totally normal. Your ultimate goal should be identifying experimental psychology labs that are doing research that you find interesting, even if it isn't the exact topic that you might want to pursue years down the line. Remember, as long as you're dedicated and motivated, you will always come out of a research assistantship with useful skills, additional knowledge, and a much better idea of what you want to do or don't want to do in your own research moving forward. Next, let's talk about how to actually get one of these research positions. Depending on the research role that you're interested in, your approach will differ slightly. If you are an undergraduate student who's interested in a volunteer research position, many lab websites have forms that you can fill out to indicate your interest. Other labs may require you to reach out via email to their lab manager or research assistant. If a lab website doesn't provide any instructions regarding RA positions, you should reach out to the lab's principal investigator directly to inquire via email about research opportunities. However, as a caveat, please keep in mind that faculty inboxes tend to be quite busy and not all of these emails may receive a prompt response. Please do not let this discourage you. Unfortunately, it's true that this kind of outreach is often a numbers game, so it's a good idea to reach out to several positions. If you are inquiring about research positions via email, you should remember to include the following. Introduce yourself and establish your academic background, like your major and your graduation year. State explicitly that you are interested in a volunteer RA position. Establish your current research interests and describe the aspects of that lab's ongoing research that specifically interest you. And finally, ask for a meeting for further discussion. You should also attach a copy of your latest transcript. This is because faculty members might want to confirm that you've already taken an introductory psychology course and perhaps a stats or research methods course. Likewise, you should also attach your resume or CV. You should not be worried at all if this document does not yet show any research experience on it. After all, this is what you're trying to get. Consequently, if that's the case, your resume or CV should highlight experiences that demonstrate a solid work ethic, motivation, and independence. And as a friendly reminder, for more detailed information on developing your CV or your resume, be sure to check out episode three. Finally, if you happen to be an undergraduate student who's currently taking a course taught by a psychology professor, you should also feel very free to attend their office hours to ask for guidance on what labs you should consider applying to based on your interests. If you have a strong relationship with this professor, you could even ask them to recommend you directly to the labs that they recommend considering. If a PI or other member of the lab is interested in meeting with you to discuss a possible research role, it is extremely important that you treat this as a formal interview. You should be prepared to discuss your research interests and work experience in more detail. You should also be ready to ask questions about the responsibilities of the research role and the expected time commitment to make sure they match up with what you're looking for. Finally, it's always good to come equipped with any other thoughtful questions you might have about the lab's recent work from your research. For a better idea of what an inquiry email to a potential PI might look like, we have included some sample emails linked in the show notes below. Next, we'll discuss how to obtain a research position as a postdoc. As we highlighted before, a great number of these postdoc research positions are unpaid. Although the skills and knowledge gained from such experiences are hugely beneficial, 
We do recognize that unpaid positions are often an additional barrier to getting involved in research, especially for those who cannot afford to take an unpaid position. With this knowledge in mind, we'll continue to highlight guidelines for securing a research position with the hope that access to research will continue over time to expand beyond those who can afford it. If you're interested in a paid postback position, the best time to start your search is around late February. It's important to note that paid postback research positions nearly always require some amount of research experience prior, usually undergrad research is plenty. The majority of paid postback research advertisements appear around March and April and often have summer or beginning of fall start dates. The application materials for these positions are very similar to that of a typical job. You'll likely have to provide a cover letter, a CV, and a list of two to three references. Unfortunately, these paid positions are few and far between. If you are interested in working in a particular geographical area, it may be important to broaden your research focus a bit in order to ensure that you have as many options near you as possible. On the other hand, if you'd like to pursue a very specific line of research, then you might benefit from widening your geographic radius to include institutions that might require you to move to a new city or even further. Additional challenges to securing a paid postback research role are the variability in position titles and the lack of a well-known central listing. Although we have referred to these terms in our podcast with the terms research assistant and lab manager in this episode, similar research experiences might be listed on job boards under the terms research coordinator or research specialist. There are a couple of ways to identify paid post-bac research positions. One great way that you can find these opportunities is by joining the email list for a professional society. PIs will often announce job ads on these email lists because their lab's research heavily overlaps with the primary research focus of people in that organization. For example, a PI who primarily studies emotion will most likely announce a research assistant position on the email list of an affective research society. A few societies that have email lists are the Society for Judgment and Decision-Making, the Cognitive Neuroscience Society, the Social and Affective Neuroscience Society, the Cognitive Science Society, and the Society for Personality and Social Psychology, among others. Another way to find out about research assistant positions is on the pre-doc section of a job posting website called psychjobsearch.wiki.com. There are also psychology job lists maintained by institutions such as Duke, Miami University, and Georgetown. We've provided a list of job boards currently available at the time that this podcast is airing in the show notes below. The next way to discover research positions might seem unbelievable at first, but it is true. You can find out about open positions in real time through Twitter. Many PIs and lab Twitter accounts will tweet about open positions, which other investigators and academics will then retweet. As a result, Figuring out which labs are hiring is pretty straightforward if you have a Twitter account. All you have to do is follow the accounts of investigators and labs whose research interests align with yours, and you might see a relevant job posting come down your timeline. Finally, word of mouth never hurts. If you're actively seeking a paid research position, you can ask your classmates or your lab mates to keep an eye out for you if they have the time. If you also have a close faculty mentor from your time as an undergrad, you can also tell them that you're interested 
in these kinds of paid positions and ask if they'd be willing to forward any job postings to you that they might receive. It is not uncommon for faculty to get personalized emails from colleagues at other institutions who are recruiting for one of these available positions. And while these jobs may also be posted in more formal channels, like the job boards or society newsletters that we mentioned before, it never hurts to leverage your network if you can. If you have already graduated undergrad without research experience, it is completely fine. Many people begin their research after undergrad and successfully matriculate to graduate school following their time as research assistants. Given that paid postback research roles are often looking for those with undergraduate experience, a volunteer postback role is an effective way to start your research experience if you've already graduated. A number of institutions offer research programs that are aimed at postbacs who may not have extensive research experience. And these programs generally include coursework as well. Although it may vary across institutions, the length of such a program is usually one to two years. Now that you know all about the different types of research experience and how to acquire them, we can dive right into a discussion about getting recommendation letters for graduate school applications. Although research experience and skills are important, letters of recommendation are a unique opportunity for a prospective PhD advisor to learn more about you through the perspective of another investigator in the field. Similar to the system of peer review, where other researchers in the field will ensure that a research article maintains validity and contains the potential to contribute positively to the field, letters of recommendation serve as an important quality check for a prospective graduate student. The typical experimental psychology PhD application requires three letters of recommendation. Other programs may only require two, but this is pretty rare. As you compile your application materials, you should think carefully about who you should request a letter of recommendation from. Before I touch on what the typical list of letter writers looks like, I want to note that it is most important to have professional references that can confidently write about how your character, skills, and experience make you an excellent candidate for a PhD program. For our field, it is generally best to provide one or two letters of recommendation from principal investigators whose labs you have worked in. For your other letter or letters, however many more you need, potential writers could be another senior level researcher in the field, a psychology professor you've taken a class with, or your supervisor from a research position you've previously held at a company. In summary, all three letter writers should be able to speak adequately on your work ethic and motivation for research. It is perfectly fine if you have not worked under the direct supervision of a PI during your research assistant experience. Often, a PI will write a letter of recommendation alongside your immediate research supervisor, that is, the graduate student or the postdoc with whom you actually worked closely. Finally, it is very important to reach out to prospective letter writers as early as possible. A good rule of thumb is six weeks before any application deadline. However, I strongly recommend requesting those letters of rec the summer before your application is due. For example, if you're applying to graduate school in the fall cycle, it's generally best to reach out to potential recommenders sometime between June and August. You may be wondering to yourself, why so early? This is because the fall semester is typically a very busy time for research supervisors. If they are a PI, they may be preparing to teach a course, supervising incoming graduate students in the lab, and answering other email inquiries from prospective graduate students who are applying that fall. Therefore, it is important to give them as much time as possible to write your letter. 
In addition, remember that you are probably one of dozens of people asking for one of these letters, and that they will need ample time to make sure each letter is personalized and speaks to the strength of each individual. When I was applying to graduate school, I remember feeling quite nervous at the thought of having to email someone to ask for a letter of recommendation. If you find yourself getting worried, you should know that if you're asking the right person for a letter, they will be more than happy to write you one. When you reach out to potential letter writers, it is important to ask if they can provide you with a strong letter of recommendation. Most of the time, people will be honest and let you know if they cannot do this. In the event that someone does decline your request, remember that this will benefit you down the line. It is better to have a strong letter than a weak letter that will negatively impact your application package. If you request a letter of recommendation via email, it always helps to request a time to meet in person or virtually, especially if you haven't spoken to your recommender recently, like if you're asking a professor whose class you took some time ago. A one-on-one -on -one meeting is a great opportunity to expand on your motivations for applying to graduate school, your current research interests, and the research programs that you're currently considering. And if your letter writer is in the field, they can provide great insight about the labs that you might be interested in applying to or highlight labs that you would not have known about otherwise. Along with your request, you should provide a prospective letter writer with a few additional items. A CV, the latest draft of your personal statement that you plan to submit with your applications, a list of institutions and specific programs to which you'll be applying, and their deadlines. This list should also include the names of PIs that you're interested in working with at those places. And finally, a summary of the classes that you took and grades you received for courses that you may have taken with your letter writer if they are a professor of yours. It's also important to keep your email straightforward and concise. You want to make it as easy as possible for them to respond, especially if you're emailing a professor. And if you'd like to see specific examples of recommendation request emails, we've linked some below in the show notes. Once you finalize who your letter writers are, make sure that you follow up with them as the deadline approaches. It's a good idea to let your recommenders know when you have submitted your application. In this follow-up email, you should also reattach your list of deadlines and ask your letter writers to let you know if they don't see any letter requests in their inbox. While you shouldn't nag your letter writers, don't be afraid to remind them a couple of days before the due date. Finally, it's a nice touch to send thank you emails to your letter writers once they've sent those letters. All right, that's all for this episode. And once again, I truly hope that this has been helpful for you. In our next episode of the Psychology PhD, Episode 5, we will dive into writing your statement of purpose. And in the final episode of this season, Episode 6, we'll talk about preparing for graduate school interviews. And just as before, we'll be updating the show notes to include links to these different topics as soon as each new episode launches. You can find the show notes below this episode in the description if you're watching on YouTube or in the show notes section of whatever podcast app you're listening on. To receive notifications when new episodes are released, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel or to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You're also welcome to join our email list to receive an email each time we release a new episode. And finally, if you found this content helpful, once again, please consider liking our episode on YouTube or rating and reviewing the show in your preferred podcast app. And we'll talk to you next time.